All right, everybody, let's, uh, let's all find a seat and uh, also find your Bibles, um, and let's open those Bibles up to 1 John chapter 4. We're in 1 John um, chapter 4 tonight, and uh, if you forgot a Bible, I know there's some in the lobby, and it'd be fantastic if you went and grabbed one of those if you just forgot one, or if you don't own a Bible, we'd love it if you grab that and take that home with you tonight as our gift to you. But as we open to 1 John 4, let's all stand together, stand together, and I'm going to read um, <clears throat> verses 7 through 12, uh, which the quarters just read a portion of this for us. And I'm going to pray for us, okay? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, tonight as we gather, not only around these tables and not only around a communion table, Lord, but as we gather around your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would build us up, Lord, that we would be found rooted and grounded in your love, that we would be blown away um, at the height and depth and breadth and width of your love for us in Christ. God, we just pray that, that your glory would be shown in this place enlighten our hearts and our minds, unveil our eyes, God, open our ears. We want to hear from you, uh, no matter where we're coming from tonight. If we know you, if we've walked with you our whole lives, Lord, I just, I just pray that um, you would speak to us through your word, for your glory's sake, in Gresham and throughout all nations. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. The year was uh, 1933. I don't remember it too well, but I was 10. I was alive. Uh, if you don't remember 93, uh, you still probably remember a song that came out that year by Hathaway, a song that became even more famous by the great movie Night at the Roxbury. Um, the title of that song and chorus, it raises a question that is universally asked and universally sought after. Uh, you know it. It's, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me don't hurt me no more, right? I was hoping to see some heads bobbing, but no heads. Okay, there's a few. Great. All right. But, but it's true, right? I mean, everyone seeks after love. You know, what is love? Everyone's seeking for it. And in seeking after love, we all simultaneously have this great fear that we don't want to get hurt in the process. I mean, love is so sought after that there are countless songs that have been written over the years from bands like Foreigner that's saying, I want to know what love is. You know, to the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, or Jackie DeShannon's song, What the World Needs Now Is Love, Sweet Love. So many other countless songs. We can go on and on for hours to the point where even the R&B artist Neo once wrote, I'm so sick of love songs. I mean, beyond music, though, just consider all the stories, right, all the entertainment that has been produced over the years about love. I mean, 
Just consider exhibit A, right? We are in the pinnacle height of Hallmark Christmas movies right now, you know? And there is not one of them that doesn't have some crazy, predictable love story. You know, they're all about some sort of city girl that moves into the country, you know, just to do some business so that she can go back to her life and her her career and that sort of thing. Yet, she always seems to meet some guy who just happens to be single somehow in this small town, right? And he's wearing some nice tight flannel. He's super handsome. They fall in love and everything is different, you know. I was I was hoping to provide that for Elizabeth, my wife. Uh, all I gave her, I think, was some tight flannel that seems to get tighter every year. I blame it on our washing machine, but, um, you know, uh, seriously, right? Is, is that what love is? Just some mushy feeling of nostalgia that brings light to our eyes and warmth to our guts. Well, I mean, really, guys, we live in a world where if you didn't realize it, we are being discipled on what love is. There's a liturgy that we live to that shapes us into thinking about what is love. And so if we're being honest, the, the answer is yes. Right? This is the love that we pursue. That's a love where we rely on someone else's loveliness and their love toward us. I mean, none of us have ever sat down across the table from somebody and said, there is nothing lovely in you at all, but do you want to date? Right? There is nothing lovely that I see in you at all, but do you want to spend the rest of your life with me. You know, no one does that. that that's not it. Our, our falling in love is based upon the things that we find lovely in other people. But, but that's not the kind of love that we're talking about today. John is talking about a love that goes beyond that which we find lovely and a love that goes beyond even our own loveliness. A, a love that comes from the very nature of who God is. I want us to see in this passage tonight that John is actually raising these really three core questions in life. In verse 9, he's raising this question, or at least it's addressed, what does God's love look like? Secondly, he, we're going to see how far does God's love go? And lastly, how does God's love change my life? And 1 John 4 addresses all of these things. So first, what does God's love look like? Well, before we get to verse 9, we, we first need to look at verses 7 through 8, right at the beginning here. And right at the beginning of verse 7 and right at the end of verse 8, we see two critical truths. John says love is from God, and he says God is love. Love is from God, and God is love. Uh, J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God, it's sold over like a million copies in the U.S. alone, he has a great, uh, remarkable statement on this. He says, John's twice-repeated statement, God is love, is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible. Right? We, we all can really get that sense, too. And someone like J.I. Packer has been studying the Bible for his entire life. It's amazing that he would say this. See, when John says God, love is from God, he's not talking about giving us something in the way that we give something, right? Like, like when we give things away, things that we've been collecting this whole Christmas season that you're going to give away to people on Christmas, what's going to happen? You are no longer going to have those gifts. They're no longer going to be in your possession. But, but that's not true with God here. When he gives his love away, he hasn't lost possession of it in his giving. He still owns it. Why? Because God is love. That's what he says. He's the very source of love. It's who he is. When he gives it, he doesn't lack it, 
because it's intrinsically a part of who he is. God is love. He is the author and definer and originator of love. He is love, just like how water makes things wet. If you were to go outside and walk through a puddle all of a sudden, surprisingly, you're going to feel wet, but you're not going to be surprised that you're wet. Why? Because you know that when you step into water, you expect to get wet, right? It's not a surprise to you. You might not like it. You might wish that never happened, but you expect to get wet when you step in water. In the same way, that's what you can expect with God. He is love. In the same way that water soaks, God loves. And you should expect love from God. It's his nature. Now, think about what this is not saying. This isn't saying that God loves as if it's just an ability God has. And it's not saying that love is God, right? Which is what our society thinks and often even believes without even recognizing it, that love is God. A couple of years ago, um, I've, I've read this to some of you, but um, many of you have not heard this, but a couple of years ago, I came across this London Times article, and I thought it illustrates this pretty well. It's pretty sobering too, um, but, but it's titled, quote, I walked out on my husband and kids for true love, and I'm not going to live with aching regret. And the article description says, a mother writes about the most agonizing decision of her life and why all the trauma was worth it. She writes, last Christmas, I left my family, my husband and my four children to be with my lover. It was something I had considered, dreamt about, and finally acted on. She then spends this whole article writing about how awful and painful this past year has been for her. And and she writes this article kind of like as the victim. Uh, it's, It's hard to read, quite honestly, because of how Uh, pretentious she comes across as, and she even proclaims, I don't even, I don't regret it, it was all worth it, and she seems to feel the need even to empower other people of doing the same thing, who are thinking of doing the same thing, to empower them to do it. She writes, to anyone reading this who fantasizes about doing the same thing, I have to warn you, you have to keep your eyes on the distant future and strongly envisage happiness, because the present day is fearsome, It is worse than leaping off a cliff. Yet I have jumped the chasm. I am on the other side. I have done what I had to do. I am living with integrity and happiness. I am living with the man I ought to have been with when I first met him. This is what you get when you reverse the statement, God is love, into love is God. Right? I mean, if you ask the world, what does love look like? They would go, well, it's this. It's just following your desires, trying to achieve your own happiness, no matter what wreckage stands in the way. See, this doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. You guys, just like the sun is light, God is love. But light is not the sun. And love is not God. And just as the sun shines and you can't stop it, right? Even on a day like today, we all know the sun's out there somewhere. We haven't seen it, right? We know that it's there. It's being shaded from our eyes from all these clouds, but we know it's shining. Just like the light shines on a bright day, and if you want to just hide in your house and pull the blackout curtain shut, the light is still shining even if you try to protect yourself from it. His love radiates from his being all the time. And so this is tremendous, but what does it look like? What does it look like? This is who God is. Well, in short, verse 9 says, 
God's love looks like Jesus. That's what it looks like. What does it say? It's really remarkable, especially at Christmas. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, right? It was being seen. It's it's visible among us. How? God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. See, verse 9 here is saying something quite remarkable, that God's love is made visible through the sending of Jesus into the world so that we might live through him. Think about this. This is amazing stuff, okay? Jesus was sent. He had a mission, and in his sending, that love is made visible. What does God's love look like? Look at Jesus. It's the manifestation of God's love. But the love of God wasn't simply meant to be looked at. It's not like, oh, that's pretty cool. Look at Jesus. God, that's the you know, vi- uh, vision of God's love or something like that. It's not meant just to be looked at. It has a purpose. What does it say in verse 9? God's love was realized so that you might live. So that you might live. Meaning you and I, apart from the sending of Jesus into the world, have a condition that can only be described as death. And he is sent not so that you and I would live apart from him, but it says in verse 9, so that we might live through him. So God didn't just create someone. He didn't just create something new to manifest his love to you. It would not have even had in and of itself what was needed to restore us in what was broken in us. No, we needed God himself, the one who was with him from the beginning. This is why it'd be great if you want to flip left in your Bibles, just one page probably, to the beginning of 1 John chapter 1. In the first two verses, what does it say? It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. So think about this. I mean, you're all into origin stories these days, right? I mean, every movie is an origin story, it seems like, right? So if you're into origin stories, you're looking at the best one right here. Eternal God made manifest in the world. Right, the love of God manifest in human flesh. I mean, you could touch this love. You could hear the voice of this love. You could physically embrace this love. I mean, how clarifying is this, you guys? You don't have to simply live in the abstract at Christmas time. We have flesh and bones walking and talking, love incarnate, John says. If you want to know what God's love looks like, Look at Jesus. So how far does his love go? That's what we see in verse 10. And honestly, if we're being honest, most of us assume that God's love only goes so far. Because we think deep down that it's kind of dependent on my behavior, or uh, it changes with my circumstances, or it'll eventually run out if once God gets bored of me or once he gets tired of me. And if God's love has a limit most of us would probably assume that we've passed it. But, but I want you to look at the beginning of verse 10. What does it say? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So, how does God 
think of you? How does he view you? What's his disposition towards you tonight? Maybe you're someone who probably thinks, well, God's disappointed in me. He's over me. He's moved on to better people. Maybe God is against me or he's super frustrated with me. But here's what I want you to hear tonight from God's word, okay? This is not just my idea. This is from God's word, okay? God loves you. He loves you. It would almost be great if you could say it out loud. I don't want to make you feel awkward, so I'm not going to ask you to do that. But I would actually invite you just to say it in your mind, right? God loves me. He loves me. I mean, this is true of you for those, if you've followed Jesus for years and you're just exhausted tonight, you're weary, you need to hear God loves you. It's true of those who are not Christians and somehow you're here tonight and I want you to hear God loves you. Now, I know almost all of us have heard this idea at some point in our lives and so we all sit there and we think, yeah, I know God loves me, but there's like an asterisk next to it, right? There's these qualifications. There's some fine print down below that you have to look closely and you'd find it. You know, God loves some things about me, but God does not love all of me. Or God loves the future me, but not the present me. Right? Who I am right now. I wonder how much we've processed, how much we've realized that we struggle to believe that we are loved by God because we are not fully known. Sure, we can stand up and look around the room and go into our family and friendship circles and go, yeah, I know that I've received love from this person in this way. They've done this. But you have this thought in your mind that goes, if they really knew me, though, they probably wouldn't have loved me that way. If they would have just known me for who I really am, right, if everything came out, they wouldn't love me in the way that I just experienced that love. And so we are guarded against this kind of love, especially when we begin to think of the fact that God knows everything about me. So if God knows everything about me, then he probably only loves parts of me. That's how the thought runs. He can't love me. But John's saying he does. How do I know? Well, look at how far his love goes. What does it say? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So how far does God's love go? It goes from the glories of heaven to the cradle to a cross. Per his own wise decision. This is the ultimate sign of how far God's love goes. From heaven to the cradle to the cross. And so John's making it clear, in this is love, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I know you probably didn't just randomly drop the word propitiation in a conversation this week. You know, if you did, kudos to you. Uh, but this is not a word we're common, you know, using in our day and night life. And so the, it's important to realize that the word translated here as propitiation um, is, a, is a word that maybe even your translation, if you have a different one than the English standard, might say atoning sacrifice. And what this means, this word is talking about the removal of guilt. It's talking about the removal of shame. 
that comes from our sin. It's the removal of that guilt. It's the removal of that shame. And that removal happens through sacrifice. It's through the shedding of blood, a perfect life. It's paid for. That removal comes through payment, satisfying the debt that is there. But it's a removal of that. So God is righteously and justly angry at our sin that we've brought into his good world. And our sin is not just against other people. It's not just an offense against other people. It's not just offense against God's creation. It's an offense against God himself. He's made us. And we've thrown off his good rule. And you and I, weekly, probably this week even, we've run after cheap counterfeit loves. So the one who is God and was with God from before creation comes and he's given to the world and he is born to die. This is why we sing these great songs that read things like, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. I mean, what amazing love is this that we're even talking about tonight? John is driving home the point that if, if you, like the band Foreigner, right, want to know what love is, and you want someone to show you, right, here it is. Do you want to know what love is? It's in this, that God was sent to die as a sacrifice so that your sin would be dealt with and therefore your guilt removed so that you might move from death to life, right? It's with this understanding that John says, God is love. God is love. She's like, well, why did God save me? Because God loves you. Why would he love me? Because God is love. That's the argument John's making. Uh, David Allen, he's a professor and theologian, and he said something pretty simply, but it's helpful. He says, God did not fall in love with us. We are sinners, and there was nothing to fall in love with in us. God does not love us on the conditions of who we are, but because of who he is. And that doesn't sound romantic to you, which is probably to get your heart pounding, I'm guessing, but I'll tell you why this is really good news, okay? Because only a love that you've done nothing to gain is a love that you could do nothing to lose. I'll say it one more time. Only a love that you've done nothing to gain is a love that you can do nothing to lose. Why? This is who your God is. So what does God's love look like? It looks like Jesus, how far did his love go? Well, it goes to the cross. Well, how will this love change your life? We find this in verses 11 through 12. What does it say? Beloved, which is so natural to say at this point, right? Loved ones. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I love what Michael Reeves um, writes about this. He says, this God, John says, is love in such a profound and potent way that you simply cannot know him without yourself becoming loving. How does God's love change your life? Well, you will love like he does if you live in his love. 
if you live in his love. See, we, we don't get to interpret this love however we want, right? I mean, we, we know that this isn't just telling us to be nice to each other. This isn't just saying, hey, deal with one another. Just make it, get by, put up with each other. This isn't telling me that I'm supposed to even wait for you to love me. This is a call to initiating kind of love, a love that says, I'll die for your good kind of love. This is, this is revolutionary kind of love. But don't be deceived. We tend to think that if we love in this sort of initiating, self-giving way, that it's going to be horrible, right? When we talk about death to self kind of love, we're like, that sounds like death, right? Because in one way it is. But that's not how John talks about it. What does it say? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us so that God sent his son into the world so that we might live. So this is living through Christ. This is what this means to live through Christ. It's to love like Christ in the same way that he has loved us. So even though it sounds horrible, even though it means that I have to die for the sake of this being manifested and experienced in your life, it's actually living, if that makes sense. This is actually how life is meant to work. I mean, I've always been helped by the example of uh, the differences. I'm I'm not the first one to point this out, okay, clearly. But um, I've always been uh, helped by the example of differences between the two famous seas in the Middle East, right? There's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And both seas have freshwater inlets. They're both receiving this fresh water into the sea. But only one of the seas actually teems with life. It's the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea, everything just begins to shrivel up and die. Like life cannot be sustained in the Dead Sea. Why? Because only one has an outlet. The Sea of Galilee actually takes that fresh water and sends it off to other places. The Dead Sea just holds on to it and therefore life actually can't survive in that place. So this passage, if you take an image like that, it's basically telling us that God doesn't make Dead Sea Christians. It makes Sea of Galilee Christians. This is what God's love will do to you. How? How do we even do this? I mean, where do you find the power for this to become a new kind of people in this world? Well, it's by understanding what Christianity is. See, Christianity is is the only belief system in this world. Christianity is the only belief system in this world that is not an audition. You're not auditioning to be accepted by God. You're not, well, if I do this and if I do that, then God will finally look at me and go, ah, there's something I can use. Oh, there's something that's worth loving. It's not an audition. Christianity is a celebration, you guys. It's a celebration when you read a passage like this and you go, there was nothing lovely in and of me, in and of myself, that would cause God to go, ah, there's something. But he chose to do this. And when I receive his love, it's a celebration. That's what this is. This is the heart behind the very gospel that we celebrate every week, that we sing about, that we take communion and remember every single week, that God's love is not a response. It comes first. It initiates. 
So how can you love like God? Well, because of verse 10, right? Because of verse 19 that says, he first loved you. I mean, this is, this is exactly how we find the power to live out verse 11, that if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is a command, but it's also a natural response. And so do you see then how this even ends? Do you see the jaw-dropping impact of verse 12? What does verse 12 say? It says, no one has ever seen God. But then, right, we are told God abides in us. No one's ever seen him. Kind of invisible stuff. God abides in you, who is love. Do you see where this is going? Do you see how amazing this is? I mean, just think about how beautiful this is. Consider how mind-blowing and essential verse 12 is. God is invisible. God abides in us, meaning by our love for one another, the invisible God is made visible. That's a mind-blown thing, right? When you think about this, I mean, do you see the love of Christ is to be experienced through Jesus' people? This is a beautiful and powerful reality that when we experience it, it is because we move from God's love being abstract and us trying to struggle to go, yeah, I think he does, to then I experience it. I don't have to ascribe to some intellectual assent and rationalize my brain to get there, but I experience it from other people. Because when you are loved by someone and that love is self-giving, it's sacrificial, and it's not because they're saying to you, look at all these lovely things that I see in you per se. You go, where does that come from? Where did that come from? And that person would go, well, the only reason they would have loved me in this way is because they have experienced the love of God. That's where it comes from. Francis Schaeffer, in his, his little book, The Mark of a Christian, said of this exact verse that this is the final apologetic. He says the ultimate apologetic is not being right in your arguments. It's not defending the Christian faith. Ultimately, he said the ultimate apologetic is our love for one another because the world looks at it and goes, where does that come from? That's not the kind of love we sing about. So Jesus is saying that the world should look inside the Christian community and see astonishing love, love that they have trouble even accounting for. Right? They shouldn't look in and see us biting and gossiping and complaining about one another or destroying one another or see a community of people that's so divided and segregated by every single thing, but the world should look in on the community of Jesus and say, look at how they love one another. I haven't seen love quite like that. So, so the world is watching, right? Is the world seeing love that they see everywhere else in the world, that all the songs read about, that all the Hallmark movies seem to display, or do they see a divine kind of love? See, God's love makes us a new people. We will love like he loves when we live in his love. We manifest his love in the world. It's sacrificial love. 
It's a love that doesn't come and go, but it remains. And it's a love that comes first, not second. I'd just be curious to sit in that tonight and, and just ask yourself, I mean, how would my friendships be different if I loved first and not second? How would your marriage change, maybe even tonight, if you loved first and not second? Right? How would your family relationships or your work relationships change? How would our church family relationships change if we all sought to love first and not second? I mean, the mark of growth for us in our lives would be noticing ourselves loving first and not second. We would be imitators of this love if we were doing that, not reluctant responders. So the key ingredient to being someone who loves first, according to 1 John, is not simply knowing but actually believing that we are first loved by God, that God doesn't love you second, right? that he doesn't respond to your love for him, but he initiates his love upon you. I, um, I love these mornings lately that are really cold in many ways, but um, a lot of days, not every day, but most days, I'll get up before um, the family and the heater's not even on yet, and so I'll go downstairs and the tree will be lit and I'll get the fireplace going, some coffee going, right? And I'll, I'll get to sit there and just have some time alone. And uh, it's freezing. It's miserable in so many ways. But with the fire going, it helps. And I'm, I'm very aware every single day, I mean, it's not rocket science, I understand this, but every single day when I get up and go get my coffee or go grab something else, right, the farther away I move from that fire, I'm cold. And then I come back to the fire and I can feel its heat, right? And it warms me up again, right? I mean, this is basic science maybe, right? Is that, is that what the word is, right? But Christmas time, you guys, I mean, what a time to come and in the same way, warm yourself by the fire of God's love, right? The gospel is, is fire, right? Maybe you're here tonight and you're freezing, because all you've known your entire life is the conditional love in this world. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and it's been a long time since you've come and just warmed yourself by the fire of the gospel, by the fire of God's love for you. You've sensed your heart growing so cold as you wander in this world. And I pray tonight is a night where you would dwell on God's love being made manifest for you in Jesus. You want to know what his love looks like? We look at Jesus. You want to be wrecked by his love tonight? Look at how far his love for you goes. It's an initiating love. And come warm yourself by this fire, you guys. It'll radically, radically change you into a person. It'll change us into a community that loves with this love first sort of love. Uh, we're going to be going into our time of communion, where if you're a follower of Jesus and you go, I've received this love of Christ, these tables are going to be open for you to come as we sing a song. And as you come this week, as we take these elements that display the gospel in this visible way, I pray that you would come tonight and you would remember in this really tangible way, and as you take these elements, 
take them remembering God loved me first. God loved me first. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you tonight and we thank you uh, for your love. It could be something easy to talk about, it seems. Um, We've become so familiar with it almost. But I pray tonight with the eyes of our heart, Lord, that you would enlighten us to see once again how costly and initiating your love has been in our life. And I pray that it would break down the walls that we've built with us and other people that you would bring a humility in our hearts that we so desperately need and that you would help us as we sing and as we take these elements even uh, to savor once again just how great you are. I pray for those tonight, Lord, who don't have this sense that they could ever be loved by you, that somehow, some way, Lord, you would speak to them, um, that you would enlarge their heart, Lord, to know how loved they are by you pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.